0: My name is Randy Shriver, and I'm president of Project 2049 and a founding partner at Armitage International. And I'm uh, really pleased to be here. Thank you, Ian and others and Barry at the Atlantic Council for the uh, invitation. And I got to say, if I wasn't sitting up here, I would want to be sitting out there because this is really an all-star panel, and I think um, will lead us in an excellent discussion here. Uh, You have the bio, so I won't spend a great deal of time, but just very briefly from the far end uh, toward me, first, Speaker will be Dr. Kirk Campbell. I think well known to everyone here, is now uh, president of the Asia Group, previously served as assistant secretary of state for East Asia and deputy assistant secretary of defense. Uh, Next to him, Amy Chang is now the staff director for the subcommittee on East Asia for the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, and has worked at a number of think tanks in Washington. I think she's probably most proud that she spent a little time at Project 2049. Uh, And then Dr. Michael Green, who is uh, at CSIS, uh, also a professor at Georgetown and and I think uh, is well known for his service in government as senior director for Asia on the National Security Council during the Bush administration. So I won't spend any more time teeing this up since we have such a a fabulous panel. I will only note that uh, Dr. Campbell has a family situation that has come up, and we'll need to leave a little bit early, but we'll get through the remarks first before uh, he will have to leave, so.
1: Thank you, Randy. Great to see so many uh, friends in the audience, and I just want to say, just stop for a moment and say congratulations. I don't know if she want to, so Amy is going to be commissioned in the Navy uh, later today, and that's a tremendous uh, honor uh, for her, but also a great tribute to her service in addition to what she's doing. on. Capitol Hill, so we appreciate her taking the time to do this today. I think we can do this. So, and again, Ian, thank you very much for having this session today. So we've talked a little bit about how to divide the discussions today, and I'm going to start at the strategic level and uh, particular issues that are animating uh, our overall engagement in the Asia Pacific region. I think at the top, of the list is the demand signal for American strategic engagement across the board has never been higher, and it's really going up, if anything. Uh, There is concern about declining defense budgets. There is anxiety about whether we're going to be able to follow through with respect to TPP. Um, Most Asians want U.S.-China relations to be in a band Two years ago, there was a worry that the United States and China were trending too much towards some sort of condominium. Today, there's anxiety after a particularly tense strategic and economic dialogue that we are veering towards a much more combative, challenging relationship over the course of the next 10 years. I would say that evolution is probably natural, but it will take some time to adjust to. Um, In addition, I think there is a recognition that each of our key partners and allies are in the midst of substantial reorientations of their national defense strategy. At the top of that list is Japan. Mike Green is the best expert on this uh, of anyone. But as we speak, uh, Prime Minister Abe and his team are involved in an extraordinarily intense effort to essentially update their national security Uh, uh, architecture and engagement uh, and they're facing really quite substantial domestic opposition. Issues associated with ballistic missile defense in Japan are expensive and they're complex. Um, Many of the big programs that were undertaken, uh, those budgets came in 2006, 2007 when Mike was at the NSC. Uh, and then subsequently under the previous government. In the new environment that Prime Minister Abe has articulated in which there will be increases in defense spending, there is more focus on activities that are perhaps, perhaps less inclined towards simply defense and more what we might describe on the political lens as active defense engagement. We don't talk about offensive capabilities, obviously. In addition to the demand signal more generally, I think there's a recognition that the multiplicity of programs, both land and sea, and the different uh, geographical engagements, and Mike and Amy will talk about work underway in Guam, the dynamics that we're facing in both Japan uh, and South Korea, some of the flirtations we've had uh, from countries in Southeast Asia and Australia, they put a strain on our existing institutions and our coordination mechanisms. I will tell you from my experience in the Pentagon and also my experience at the State Department, one of the areas that I would like to see slightly better focus on is uh, how the agency engages, uh, the uh, uh, ballistic missile defense agency engages with its partners in government. I think there's going to be a need, a much greater need for greater coordination, not just in the Pentagon, uh, but uh, in a broader uh, array of partners in the State Department and the White House as well. I think uh, in this environment, uh, with scarcer resources, and here, I think one of the keys, as you travel uh, to the Pentagon and out to the region, Mike just got back (coughs) from Hawaii, Um, and I I, I spend a lot of time uh, in the Pentagon these days for the Defense Policy Board, I am struck by the recurring theme that one hears from senior officials that look, just give me the opportunity to get up on Capitol Hill and we will get through this budget impasse and we will find our way to a new uh, equilibrium in which we will see um, uh, more of our projects funded and greater flexibility associated with the defense budget. I I think that is a fundamental misreading of what's going to happen in the United States. And I think we are stuck with this um, uh, uh, sequestered capabilities to see Corey nodding her head for the foreseeable future. And I think even though no one can come right out and say it, we have to start thinking a little bit more creatively uh, accordingly. Uh, ballistic missile defense in Asia is hurt by some of these constraints um, uh, substantially and I will tell you what I've been struck by at least over the course of the last several years is that um, there are growing questions about focus uh, in several countries. Um, I will uh, tell you quite honestly uh, the focus that we've had in the United States on South Korea has been on the very public pressure that China has placed on South Korea, right? But in truth, there is another story beneath that, which is the deep uh, ambivalence of the Korean people, even on the security side, about whether major investments in THAAD and other program are in their best strategic interests. So in fact, China complicated uh, a situation uh, in a way that if they had remained silent, I think, uh, the Korean government might have decided, uh, at least for the time being, uh, to wait. Now, with very clear public pressure and a very keen Korean nationalist sense that, look, we are a great country and, and, and we need to make our own strategic decisions, these matters are in play. I'll conclude uh, just simply by saying my own sense is that there was a period in which ballistic missile defense really was... Uh, an area of very strategic uh, focus, not just among the military, but on the political side. We would be in meetings with prime ministers and presidents, uh, leaderships from the Blue House to various parts of government. Um, I believe that period has largely passed, and new areas of focus are now emerging that are supplanting some of those capabilities and discussions of the past. Much more focus now on expeditionary capabilities, power projection, maritime domain awareness, uh, uh, use of uh, UAVs and other capabilities that essentially maximize ability to understand what takes place in vast areas of uncharted ocean. And frankly, uh, areas where uh, we see encroachments on a daily basis. So I think this conference is extraordinarily well-timed to be able to look carefully at where our primary areas of focus are to complete some of our initial missions. If you had to have a mental picture in your head, it would be like driving through one of those unfinished housing projects that are extremely expensive. That a house is almost finished, but still lots of landscaping. A few things need to be done in a number of countries, particularly in Japan, to have the kind of robust system that will be relevant for Japan's uh, security and strategic interests going forward. I think without this sort of strategic um, overarching understanding, I think many countries are going to be wary that further investments will uh, be difficult to actually integrate in a way that affects their security and given the remarkable competition for budget dollars. If you look at the various countries in Asia, each of them are 200% over budget, 300% over budget. The difficulties and the challenges associated with these hard choices are gonna be very real going forward. Thank you.
2: Amy? Right. Thank you, Ian and Barry, for inviting me to speak here today. Um, so Kurt focused on the strategic view. I'm going to take it from the Asian perspective as well as provide um, a sort of background of you know what Congress is doing and what the US could do to improve ballistic missile defense in Asia. Um, while Kurt says that a lot of the focus has been moving over to maritime do- domain awareness and all these other issues that are popping up in in the further southern regions of the Asia Pacific, I still think that North Korea is posing an even greater threat continually. Um, and that underscores the, the relevance that US and ballistic missile defense could play in Asia. And in the, the NDAAs from 2013 to 2015, they've all explicitly said that you know, North Korea's behavior and um, ballistic missiles pose a significant threat to, um, to our forward-deployed forces as well as um, to our uh, allies in the region as well. And that poses a constant existential threat to um, the Republic of Korea as well as Japan. And so um, e- even though they have no proven ICBM intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missile capability yet, Um, There's, you know, continued rhetoric about developing those types of technologies, and I I think that even though North Korea makes a lot of empty threats, they also are um, trying to work towards these capabilities to be able to uh, change the dynamics of the region. And uh, while, you know, it doesn't, our BMD policy doesn't explicitly mention China, I mean, the the increasing amount of nuclear... Uh, modernization of uh, nuclear forces. Modernization over the se- past several years has also been um, concerning and could change the the dynamic of the region as well. Um, so the United States is working with a lot of allied countries in the region to try to collaborate on on BMD. Um, and I mean, I think collaboration, as the United States has said, has a lot of potential to lower costs, improve efficiencies, help us share information across different actors, as well as um, uh, just have better information sharing. In Japan, we have arguably the, the strongest BMD cooperation. Um, we're jointly developing SM3 interceptors. We jointly share all of the costs and manage the program together. And in, in Korea, they only recently started developing um, advanced BMD capabilities. In, in 2013, we started our discussions with the Republic of Korea to talk about THAAD, or Terminal High Altitude Area Defense. Um, those conversations have stalled, as, as um, Kurt mentioned, and, and I'll go into that a, a little bit in the, fut- in, in the next few minutes. In Taiwan, we have a um, pretty robust relationship there with our patriots, um, as well as an in indigenous TK missile systems that they're developing. Um, they're also doing continuous upgrades, and um, they've allotted about $2 billion U.S. billion between now and the 2020s to modernize their um, missile defenses. Um, In the Philippines, they currently don't really see um, much relevant need for ballistic missile defense. I think the focus really there is, as Kurt said, maritime domain awareness and other more pressing security issues for for them than than developing these types of capabilities. That said though, I think the United States and and the Philippines still have a really robust relationship and and are continuing to, to look at other ways to advance that. Um, Then Australia, it also applies, they've been acquiring necessary hardware and software for more robust BMD capabilities, but again, without um, major ICBM threats in the region, it it doesn't necessarily seem like the the most logical thing for them to pursue right now. And so, you know, the, the unique security situation with North Korea and the, the need to protect our allies and forward deployed forces really drives a lot of the BMD um, policies that we have. And we face a lot of impediments, I have to say. Um, it, it lacks, BMD in Asia lacks the, the sort of multilateral um, collaboration that, that exists in Europe. Um, and, and it's hard because of all the histories and the cultures and the dynamics in the region that prevent us from from sort of pushing for that sort of multilateral architecture. Um, other other major impediments include. Um, I'm going to focus on South Korea here. Um, first and foremost, the South Korea-Japan relationship has not been uh, ideal. Um, they this year is especially. Sensitive year for the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II. Um, tensions have been high all um, all year, and I think they'll cons- consistently continue to be that way through August, September um, of this year, and um, that may be a major limiting factor. And we signed an MOU with Japan and South Korea to do information sharing, but collaboration so far on that has been pretty limited. And even if the historical issues are solved, I still think there are several other major impediments to to creating a better regional uh, BMD architecture in the region. Um, so whether, it, first it, it goes into uh, what Kurt said, whether Korea thinks it actually could provide more value to to the country and or whether it would entrench upon their strategic autonomy. Um, there There's uh, a lot of ambivalence with the Korean population as to whether or not they want greater um, U.S. presence in 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 Korea, and second, even if they did want that, I mean, how would they pay for the increased uh, and improved BMD capabilities? One that system costs about 800 uh, million dollars, and Korea's defense budget last year was 33 billion dollars. So, you know, if they're going to think about how they're going to be able to fund these things, um, that that's another consideration that we need to have and consider. Um, and the third point I have is um, China and Korea relations. We have uh, China has been convincing Korea to, to reject that and, and not not have um, this type of relationship with the United States. And it also is convenient because China and Korea share a common history um, of, of sort of a lot of history and, and mistrust with Japan, and so they can they can capitalize on, on that sentiment as well. Um, Japan, uh, sorry, China is Korea's also largest trading partner and according to President Pak in a, in a statement recently, China has a huge role to play in upholding peace and stability on the Korean peninsula. And because of that, she will continue to maintain strategic ambiguity on the issue, not necessarily giving us a definitive answer on whether or not that um, could eventually be deployed in, in the region. So until we can address all of these issues, um, then our desire to rebalance or phase in B- BMD capabilities in the region will be severely hampered. And our desire to, to do so will remain just that, a desire. So you know, what, what could the United States, and specifically, what could the US Congress do to try to alleviate those tensions, to try to boost um, uh, boost Boost awareness of this issue. Um, so first, I think that um, contrary to, to what Kurt mentioned, I think BMD has always had congressional support and has always been funded at the requested um, values. So that's, that's a good thing. I mean so if we can justify further expansion of BMD in, in Asia, I think um, uh, Congress is pretty sympathetic to the issue. Second, I think we need to continue to provide assurances to our partners in the region, especially Korea, um, as well as to continue to reassure China and Russia that we're not, you know, improving our capabilities and, and our presence there to, to undermine their nuclear deterrence. Um, and along with that, I think we should also have hearings um, on the issue. And. Later this month, the Asian Pacific Subcommittee will be holding a hearing on bilateral alliances in Asia, and it'll be a good opportunity to talk about the progress that U.S. and Japan have made, but also highlight the potential value that Korea um, could play in the in trilateral agreement, in, bi- in bi- bilaterally um, as well as regionally. Then we need to continue to just encourage greater integration, so we can, you know, save costs. Have better efficiency, better information sharing, um, as well as signaling to the region that we do care about um, security in the region and that we promote a collective approach to, to BMD. Um, And finally, I think we could think outside of the box and promote more innovative solutions to bolster these trusted relationships that we already have, U.S.-Japan, U.S.-Korea. Maybe we could anonymize the information that's being shared so that Korea doesn't feel that the information is skewed if it comes from Japan or the United States. So all of these issues, I think, all of these suggestions, I think, could, could actually help alleviate the tensions, as well as promote um, greater greater US presence in ballistic missile defense capabilities in Asia.
0: Thank you.
3: Um, thank you, and, and thanks, Amy. The Hill, um, over the last um, uh, six months or year, has really stepped up on these kinds of issues. Um, Amy's boss and the House uh, International Relations Committee, the HASC, the SASC, and SFRC have really stepped up and added some discipline um, to the policy debate in the administration, and I think, and also I think sent very reassuring signals to allies um, as well. Um, so I'm very happy to be here, always glad to be invited by Barry, I'm always impressed by the discussion here. I just I missed the lunch, I just noticed the cookies. I'm really <laughs> impressed by the cookies. Those are big cookies. We don't have cookies that big as CSIS. You should
1: fling one of those <laughs> up. You can take, take out some missiles with those, Barry. And, and <laughs> if you've ever seen CNAS's
3: teeny little cookies, i mean <laughs> um, So let me say a few things about the geopolitics uh, of missile defense in the Asia-Pacific theater, and then add a few <clears throat> um, supplementary comments to Amy's on the Allies. Um, we are obviously playing a complicated three-dimensional chess game with China. We're trying to leverage interdependence. We're trying to shape the theater um, diplomatically with things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership in Trade, with multilateralism, with um, new relationships um, building with (coughs) India and Indonesia. But but we're also um, having to underpin all of that um, with a certainty that we can fight tonight that we can de- deter and defeat aggression against um, also our allies in the Western Pacific. <clears throat> Missile defense touches on all of these um, in a pretty profound way. <clears throat> in terms of deter and defeat, if uh, Beijing thinks, or our allies think, that we'll be deterred from intervening in an aggressive act against Japan and the Senkaku's, the Philippines and the South China Sea, or Taiwan, because we're scared of the vulnerability of Guam, Kadena, um, to ballistic missiles, then uh, deterrence is weakened. And our larger game to avoid conflict and avoid revisionism on a strategic level is weakened. And so it goes right to the heart of of, of what underpins all of the non-kinetic, non-military things the United States tries to do to make sure that we um, develop a relationship with China over time that is benign. Um, and missile defense goes right to the heart of it. Some people get this completely wrong by saying, well, the missile defense isn't going to "quote unquote" solve the ballistic missile problem. That's not—that's not how you think about it. <coughs> um, the, we deal with the um, ballistic missile threat um, by complicating the other guy's planning, and so uh, missile defense is has to be part of a larger strategy that involves um, not only defense but dispersal, um, hardening, um, and an interoperability and jointness with our allies that complicates planning. Um, and, uh, and often people get this all wrong and just sort of count how many FAD batteries we have and how many missiles they have and say, game over. We should focus instead on trade and other things. Uh, it's just the wrong way to think about it. Um, missile defense uh, is becoming a critical uh, definition of how our alliances in Asia are going to um, progress. Um, the Chinese assumption, I believe, is that um, over time, because of growing dependence on Sinocentric trade and so forth, our allies will slowly be weaned from the United States. Um, It'll be a combination of attraction through trade and and $4 trillion in in surpluses, uh, capital surpluses Beijing has, and some elements of coercion to demonstrate, especially in the South China Sea, the US doesn't have game, um, and geography, um, and that the uh, assumption over time is that um, the alliance system, the 1951 San Francisco alliance hub and spoke system is a sort of footnote in history, not the natural state of the Asia Pacific uh, geopolitical order. I don't think that's right. I don't think most of our allies think that's right. Missile defense goes right to the heart of this, because um, the introduction of missile defense capabilities technologically requires us to be essentially joint and combined with our allies. And the best example is Japan. We do not have a joint and combined command with Japan. We never have. They never wanted it. We never pushed for it. Uh, The Soviets until Reagan and the Chinese until Kurt Campbell and the uh, Nye Initiative in the 1990s thought they could divide Japan in a crisis. Um, I do not believe the Chinese make that assumption anymore. I think the Chinese planning assumption is under any contingency in the first island chain Japan is in. Now, the Japanese government has never made that explicit, Um, But the tactical capability is there and the interest is there. And one of the drivers is missile defense. So in Yokota, the only thing comparable to joint and combined command we have is air and missile defense, where U.S. and Japanese officers basically sit side by side in front of computers. If you've been to the Combined Forces Command or the bunker in Korea, that's the norm. Or NATO, that's sort of the norm. (laughs) But in U.S. Japan, it it has never been the norm. But now it's becoming that way because missile defense is driving it. Chinese can't assume they cannot separate the U.S. Japan in a, in a, in a crisis in the first island chain. Um, I think that Beijing thinks it can separate Korea. And the last thing Beijing wants is for the Koreans to be um, in link 16 and, um, and seeing the same threat picture and managing the response with us and, God forbid, the Japanese or the Australians. So um, in a way, this is the natural um, evolution of an alliance uh, and a series of alliances based on our common defense, or in the case of Japan, the defense of Japan. This is what our alliances should be doing. The technological threat is new. The technological response is new. But what it looks like to Beijing is this is technology is making these alliances a lot more enduring, a lot more joint, a lot more combined than their assumption. And so they hate it. So a lot of the Chinese attack on Korean uh, uh, missile defense or on the U.S. deploying THAAD it's not about the threat to their missiles. Um, the Chinese intercontinental ballistic missiles and medium-range ballistic missiles have all moved, and are mobile and and, and, are, and are not on the coast anymore in many cases, and are outside of the basically outside of um, a THAAD battery based at near Camp Humphreys, outside of that envelope. Um, what this is really about is um, is 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 China testing if it can dictate the terms of Korea's security going forward. <coughs> um, Then the third geopolitical piece, in addition to underpinning deterrence, complicating enemy planning, which is essential for everything we do to keep Asia safe in in peacetime, and of course, the future of the alliances. The third piece is the uh, credibility of extended deterrence in Asia. So for all of our allies, but especially Japan and Korea, um, the fact that um, the DPRK has, in the course of 15 years, gone from almost zero to well over 200 missiles that range Japan that the Chinese MRBM medium range ballistic missile inventory is growing exponentially that the Chinese in open literature are talking about um war fighting um, uh, options for tactical nuclear weapons with Japan and so forth you know all uh, the the fact that the um, KN8 you know could not before too long reveal itself as a capability of a, of a missile that could hit um, the West Coast. I'm from Washington, you know, whatever. But, uh, <laughs> but if you're our allies, it brings back the old De Gaulle line, or you're going to trade LA for Tokyo or Seoul. So ex- the credibly event extended deterrence is something we can't take for granted, granted. We have to keep shoring it up. Working with allies on missile defense is a critical piece of that. So it's more than just a technological solution to a missile threat. It's, it, it goes to the heart of the future of Asian order. A few quick things um, to highlight. On Japan, they are, I, I, Amy said arguably, thanks, Kurt. I would say they are, worldwide, our most significant partner in missile defense right now. <laughs> um, and there's no, not a lot of debate in Japan about this anymore, um, not compared to 15 years ago, because the threat is so obvious. Um, in 2018, the SM-3 2As will start being deployed. Uh, you know, Within budget constraints, Japan's more or less keeping on track. A couple things to watch. Um, uh, and this is a problem for us, too. Um, we have more batteries than we do missiles, uh, not literally. But we don't have enough missiles. So um, uh, readiness is an issue, and, and I think something that Congress, that think tanks, need to really think about. If you have a beautiful, shining THAAD battery or Pack batteries and you have enough missiles to fight for X number of hours or days, um, that's a problem. So um, we, the Japanese allies, need to think about that. Um, uh the Japanese really haven't done anything on hardening. Uh that's hard politically at a place like Kadena or Yokota, but it is an issue. They've done a lot on dispersal because they have a lot of runways uh, all over the place. Um right now, based on the defense guidelines, Japan relies on shared early warning. Um you know, one question is should Japan have its own semi-indigenous early warning? Maybe a US system on a Japanese satellite. I think there's going to be a lot of merit to that because um, space assets are not going to be secure and we're going to want resiliency and redundancy and the Japanese having an interoperable um, early warning system would be good. Um, but they're, they're pretty solidly on board with this plan. Um, Korea, uh, you know, over half of Koreans and Poles support the deployment of THAAD. The Koreans on paper are planning to have eight or nine Aegis, but they don't have the interceptors or the capability to do missile defense. I think they should. As I said, the threat to China uh, or to China's deterrent is minimal. So this really gets to the question of um, whether China gets to dictate Korean security. And I am a fan fan of Pakune, but I think the government has played this very badly. Um, the, the, The theory is that if you're cautious on things like that, then China will help you on North Korea. Question, what has China done for South Korea on North Korea in the last four years? Answer, nothing. Except for one thing, they have summits now with the South Koreans without meeting Kim Jong-un. That's new. They would have done that anyway because Xi Jinping can't stand Kim Jong-un. So I don't think the Koreans have gotten any terribly immeasurable amount of security for this position. On the other hand, if you want China to use its considerable leverage, 90% of food and fuel for North Korea comes from China. If you want China to use its leverage, then you need to disabuse Beijing of the idea that time is on their side. That you know why pressure North Korea in risk and risk instability now when in 10, 20, 30 years China will be in a position to kind of dictate both Koreas. How do you break that assumption by showing that North Korean actions are moving uh, the ROK uh, closer to the U.S. Um, and closer to our other allies and developing the kind of missile defense capabilities that are that are enduring? So I think actually the answer to the North Korea problem and getting Chinese leverage on North Korea for Seoul is to do missile defense um that, that would be the best card they could play but it's not there right now the relations with japan are getting better but um that bilateral piece a, a GSOMIA, an information sharing agreement it's hard for me to see that happening in the next year or two so we'll have to do things like amy mentioned a trilateral agreement where it passes through us step by step uh, work this with our friends in korea um uh, so to conclude um, there are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of questions. But it is really an essential part, not just of our military strategy. I think missile defense is an essential underpinning of our of our grand strategy um, uh, for the whole region.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, I think this was an excellent um, setup for our discussion that will follow. And I like how uh, all of you weaved in the geopolitical dynamics that really inform all this. And, and that was extremely helpful. Um, I'm ready to open the floor, but if there's, well, Richard's uh, Richard's ready. I was going to say if there's not an immediate question, I'll slip one in. So I'll slip one in and then go to to Richard. Um, uh, Mike, you talked, and and I'll address this to you, but Amy, um, please feel free to offer your thoughts as well. Uh, you talked a fair amount about China and seemed to seemed to indicate that it it seemed to be a dual message, at least to me, that much of what we're doing, if not all of what we're doing, in terms of missile defense, active defenses, uh, shouldn't concern them because their missiles have been redeployed. It's outside the threat envelope. They could saturate and overwhelm anyway. But yet you also said it's not just about the numbers. It's about a comprehensive approach to missile defense, which would include hardening, which would include dispersal, and and active defense is a part of that. So maybe it is about China a little bit. Um, So the, the question is, how? How do we think about China and how do we talk about our approach to missile defense in Asia? Should it be primarily about reassurance that it's, it's not directed at you? Or should it be about deterrence that it's partly about you because it's part of a comprehensive approach? Mm-hmm. Or is it dual messages? Is one public, one private? And
3: so if I were in government, I'd probably say it's all about North Korea, which
0: <laughs> is
3: the safe thing to say. The reality is, um, I was speaking specifically about THAAD deployments for USFK. The THAAD deployment in Korea does not have a any significant material impact on China's uh, deterrent.
0: Um,
3: so that, in that case.
0: But some are inclined, even more broadly and generally, to say this is not about China as a well, reassurance, i, I uh, But
3: when you're talking about the THAAD deployment in Guam, for example, or you're talking about missile defense with Japan, um, it's. It it, it it was driven originally and is and is operationally now and in terms of military strategy largely about North korea and we can handle that threat but it it is it clearly has to be and is part of our strategy uh, with regard to to China and the China problem is much much harder but um, but in the case of China um, it, it's a much denser set of instruments we have um, and uh, including diplomacy and alliances and and economics, and um, so complicating Chinese planning in a way uh, is easier than North Korea because they have more to lose uh, from a conflict um, and and more of a stake in a good relationship with us. And and so even though the problem's harder, um, you you, you still get marginal benefit. Um, So I don't know if that answers your question, but there's different, the the theater, the, the peninsula is different from the maritime domain. Um, uh, and, uh, and that's one reason. But also, um, uh, it, it, you know, the B, B, BMD is part of a larger grant strategy. It doesn't solve the missile problem, but it well, thank you. contributes to solving it.
0: And, Amy, on, on this same question, um, any thoughts on, on the issue? But also, uh, your sense of members of Congress, if they think about ballistic missile defense in Asia as primarily a North Korea issue? Or is China in the equation? Or, or how are they uh, dealing with it?
2: well china's a part of every equation according to any member of congress um, I, but speaking specifically on on missile defense i i haven't heard much in my very short time that i've been on the hill um i've i've only been in this position for about 4 months so um, and and largely i i any, any major consideration of, of missile defense, of, def, of defense issues in Northeast Asia do center on North Korea and, and the, the provocations, um, the, the endless cycle of provocation and, and, and uh, um, asking for humanitarian aid and those types of things without necessarily any repercussions from our end kind of puts us in a bind. But you know when, when, we, when we get down to it and think about the sort of threat that, that um, the major threat in Asia is definitely North Korea, because um, with all the people that, that um, consider and try to figure out this, this puzzle, there's no one right answer. Um, and there's no one proven way to engage, or punish, or uh, work with North Korea that, that has given us any sort of desirable results that, that we seek.
0: Thank you. Richard.
4: Thanks. Uh, Richard White, Hudson Institute. Just a related question on China. Um, The Chinese periodically say that they are conducting a ballistic missile mid-course ground missile defense test. Um, And in theory, if they were to engage in missile defense programs and activities, then it would be, you know, you could work out some kind of arrangement with them on what would be permissible, what would be controlled, and how. But most experts seem to think, at most, they're just testing the capability so they can overcome it. And in practice, most of these tests are really just uh, just, com- uh, just anti-satellite tests, which they just call missile defense tests because we have missile defense tests, so they can, you know, if they, if they say that's what it is, and it's not a problem. Um, I guess you're not in your head that that's your interpretation, Michael. I just wasn't sure what anyone thought about that. Well, it's
3: not an anti-satellite capability. Yeah. Um, are you asking whether we should engage in some no, kind whether of they, arms they, control? Might, might, no,
4: well, do you think they're serious about ever doing, uh, not ever, but in the immediate future, engaging in missile defense program? We should answer some of these, too.
0: <laughs> well, they have um, longstanding research in this area, research and development in this area. And I, I think for the Chinese, perhaps the beauty of it is they're not, it's not an either-or necessarily. It's not a mutually exclusive. They can approach the... Uh, the program with a, a particular orientation, it's its so that we can learn, so that we can learn to overcome and defeat, but all the while, they're developing a, a capability along the way that may be useful for them. Um, I don't, my experience with arms control, I mean, its it, it would be overly generous to even call it that, but any kind of diplomacy with China when it comes to their missiles, to think that we could get into a discussion that would lead to, you, you suggested uh, an ABM-like or some. some
4: didn't agree with the Russians yeah.
0: Right. I'd be very pessimistic yeah. about that. I also think the Chinese um,
3: uh, and Ren, you ought to come to the tube. I think the, the PLA concern now is not ballistic missiles; it's precision guided munitions, and and that's mm-hmm. that's the so that's the growth area for their threat perception, not uh, like us. Ballistic missiles flying at our bases, so I'm not sure how much of a basis for a discussion you could have because they wouldn't—they'd want to get at our precision-guided munitions and forward-deployed forces and things that it'd be an apples-and-oranges kind of discussion. But I do think um, that um, you know it, it, it should be part of a broader discussion with Beijing about what people call strategic stability, and um, and not just for us, by the way, but for Japan and others who are fielding missile defense. This actually one of the side effects of when Japan started getting serious about deploying missile defenses, the Chinese agreed around 98 or so to get serious about talking about um, strategic stability with Japan. And they began having a a discussion precisely because Japan had skin in the game with missile defense. They obviously don't have an offensive capability. So it should be part of a broader dialogue, but a, a kind of ABM type arrangement, for me, hard to see.
2: If you're talking about anti-satellite capabilities, I mean, I, I, I could see how, you know, in addition to targeting our pre- precision-guided munitions, it would be a serious concern for us. But, you know, as what Randy said, I don't necessarily think that we could make forward progress in having some sort of substantive dialogue and creating any sort of norms or rules on, on, con- on, on the conduct of their behavior, whether they call it um, a mid-course ground missile defense or an anti-satellite test.
0: Ian. Thanks. Ian paid for this microphone, so he gets the, <laughs> as and Ronald the co- Reagan once said. <laughs> and the cookies. practice hardening and dispersal. Two countries haven't really mentioned that directly uh, about their pot- and their potential roles in a regional Asia-Pacific uh, missile defense architecture, and that's Australia and Taiwan. And I'd be interested in your perspectives on what challenges do they pose? What potentials do they offer? Uh, can they be used to catalyze uh, regional, uh, regional, regional collaboration and development of an architecture?
3: Um, Australia is a little bit schizophrenic on this issue. Um, the Labour Party, um, is, you know, in the era of Star Wars and Reagan, became hysterical, uh, very anti-nuclear to begin with. Um, that's why when the Labour Party did its defense white paper under Kevin Rudd, they were very anti-missile defense. But the Australian military, which is expeditionary, um, ha- is, is putting into the fleet 2 amphibs um, uh, uh, M- M- um is, uh, is going to be going places around the world. They want missile defense capability to, to, for force protection. And so uh, it's going to be, and, and then the other complication is their budget's not as big as Japan's, the Australian Army's smaller than the U.S. Marine Corps. So it'll be budget issues, a little bit of politics, but I think um, in at in a more incremental pace, They'll be in, and I think the current the Abbott government is also interested in missile defense because they are developing uh, a security relationship with Japan that's becoming pretty sophisticated, um, and this would be part of it. So it's it's I think we're I think we're on a pretty good track, but it's not gonna we're not gonna see it evolve as quickly as we did with Japan would be my guess. And Taiwan hardening hardening hardening, <laughs> but um, you know, Pack three, I don't know beyond that they have a case for ages, but well.
0: I don't know if you wanted to get in Well, they also have um, uh, very good radar capability. So in terms of integrating into the having a common picture, my understanding, I don't, I don't fully know the technical details, but the strategic uh, reconnaissance radar that they've built uh, with the help of our friends at, at Raytheon has very deep coverage into China, deeper than any other land-based or ship-based system. Maybe not, you know, it, it would complement satellite coverage, but I think integrating them into the uh, operating environment, the operating picture is something we could consider. I mean, with Taiwan, there's the political considerations. We try to avoid alliance-like things um, to prove that we don't have a formal relationship, to prove that it's not an not a, uh, operational alliance. But I think in, in this particular area, they have capabilities that would be attractive to us and, and others, and, and we could pursue that.
3: The other problem Taiwan has is they're kind of inside um, cruise missile range, um, so, and that's a hard, hard problem. So it's a piece of the solution. It's not as big a piece as it would be for us or Japan, in my view, but, um, but it is a piece of the solution, missile defense. Sir, did you want to? Oh,
0: okay. From your perspectives, contrast the advantages and disadvantages of sea-based versus land-based missile?
3: Well, I mean, sea base for Japan is a pretty obvious solution, aside from the Pac-3s. There's talk of THAAD, but um, uh, basically for two reasons. One is Japan is is a maritime power, um, and uh, the the Navy um, has the mission. They're very good at it. Um, They're somewhat expeditionary. Um, And and the second reason is there's not a lot of real estate in Japan. So THAAD is complicated. And as you may know, there's talk of Aegis Ashore. And uh, this, you know, aside from the budgetary issue, it's it's considered a good option. but The budgetary issue is huge, so that would be sort of the land option for J- for Japan. Um, you know, we need all of the above, the U.S. Uh, of A. Korea. You know, if they have eight or nine Aegis destroyers, cruisers, um, uh, that's a lot, and. Um, uh, you know they can also be with us in, in an expeditionary uh, role potentially um, but um, but just extended air defense it seems like an awful lot of cap- of of, uh, of aegis platforms for just extended air defense and it 's pretty it would be much more logical for Korea to start moving towards missile defense. The ballistic missile threat from north korea uh, is is getting is getting harder and harder it 's not static it 's getting harder um, and the North Koreans are pouring more money into it because they're not able to do combined arms maneuvers or fly their planes very well. Um, and uh, you know, we, we counter battery fire and shooting back can take care of the problem. You know, 48 hours after they've launched a lot of Scud variants and things, um, and then for us, moving south and consolidating in uh, Camp Humphreys, um, and the need to protect. Um, Uh, and other um, ports for reinforcements and so forth. All those, to me, create a real requirement for Korea to have uh, more missile defense capability on these ages than they're talking about now, as a military requirement.
2: I'd agree, (laughs) ma'am. Okay, ma'am. Hi, Jen Judson with Politico. Um, given the complications you've all discussed, is there a possibility or a need for something like a European phased adaptive approach in Asia? And what could that feasibly look like? Um, earlier, Cartwright said the Asia Pacific missile defense approach would look very different than in Europe in that it would augment missile defense with mobile capabilities but rely on fixed capabilities. But in Asia, it would be in reverse. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that as well. Do you want to start? Um, I mean, I, I would just reiterate a lot of the things that I mentioned earlier about how um, a lot of the historical tensions, hi, um, cultural issues, and um, as well as the the different geography kind of uh, complicate the situation. In addition to that, you add the factor of North Korea, a kind of non-compliant state in the middle of everything, um, just just complicates the issue um, tremendously. And I think what uh, put a big impediment on on the Asia-Pacific phase-adaptive approach. Um, a, as I mentioned earlier, I think the U.S. is ready to go and continue to improve um, our capabilities in the region. Um, I, I would say the ball is in, in Asia's court right now.
3: I think Hoss-Kai makes an interesting point because, you know, ten years ago, it was overwhelmingly mobile, you know, Aegis. Um, I think as the threat has uh, matured and. Uh, particularly to um, Guam, to the southern part of the Korean Peninsula. You know Now people are talking about THAAD. And uh, so we're going to need all of the above.
0: Sir?
4: Hi, um, Raj uh, Boya, no affiliation. My question is specific to India. Um, I'm going to mention a couple of facts. Um, Indochina war that took place a few decades ago, and. Uh, um, A great relationship between India and USSR, a historic relationship, and um, improved relations between uh, U.S. and India now, Um, uh, and uh, concern in India regarding uh, China's aggressive military posture. So in in, in this context, what are your thoughts on uh, the kind of role U.S. is going to play down the line in 10, 20 years in the Indian subcontinent? Thank you. I think
2: there are go ahead, go ahead. No, okay. I should go. Um, I'll just speak from a general point of, I, I think that the you, the sense from at least congress I believe is is there's there's a lot of opportunity for um, collaboration between the United States and India on on the defense capabilities um, we've seen a growing a growing need for for modernization of India's defense forces um, as well as you know, new new and un, Unseen before threats in in the Indian Indian Ocean and, and um, the southeastern part of uh, of India, and so uh, there's a lot of opportunities for for there to be greater collaboration. I think a lot of the people in Congress too are um, reinvigorated by the new leader, um, Prime Minister Modi, and and hope that you know in in his tenure that they could continue to um, discuss new ways to to to. Um, have have defense collaboration and p- potentially going into ballistic missile defense capabilities.
3: I remember in, I guess, April, uh, I think it was, maybe May 2001, at the beginning of the Bush administration, I was in the NSC, Randy was working as um, Deputy Secretary Armitage's Chief of Staff. You probably went with him on the trip, but Rich went on this trip around the world to explain we were gonna get out of the ABM treaty, and um, all the pundits and the New York Times, and, and everybody said, oh, the Indians are gonna just clobber Armitage you know, you know, the non-aligned movement and, and, and their belief in, supposedly in arm control, blah, blah, blah. And you weren't on the trip, right? No. You weren't? Well, anyway, Rich, I mean, it was all goodness. It was all goodness. <laughs> and, um, the Indian government faces, and India faces a, 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 a ballistic missile threat. And, uh, and they were very, not only were they supportive of the administration's decision, we started talking about missile defense cooperation. It hasn't gone very far. Um, this year I believe, the US, US arms sales to India will, pat, will top Russia for the first time. So we have a very, very um, deep relationship. But a lot of the stuff we sell is not kinetic. It's C-130s and, and, and Coast Guard cutters and frigates and things uh, that will become frigates and things like that. Um, so India has its own indigenous programs for air defense and concepts, at least, for extended air defense. And I could see us cooperating on that uh, and helping India's indigenous capability. Um, somewhere 10, 20, 30 years down the road, um, uh, I, I could see you know, more interoperability of systems between the US, Japan, India, and Australia because of the um, steady Chinese growth of capabilities towards the Indian Ocean way down the road. But right now, it's, I think it's still the level of talk and some technical mm-hmm. cooperation and probably will be for a little while.
0: Sure. How do you assess the state of Chinese missile defense systems? How do they compare to Russia's United States? Well, I think we, we're getting at it a little bit with Richard's question. I mean, it's, it's been a longstanding program for research and development, um, primarily probably for the purpose of learning how to defeat and deal with missile defenses in the, in the hands of others and and mike added to that with a very very good point um for the most part other countries have Im- imposed constraints on themselves when it comes to short range medium range ballistic missiles um so the threat that others face from china they're not facing you know from japan and korea um their threat is different it's the precision guided munitions so i, I don't think They've had the same sense of urgency to develop, you know, operational capability. It's been more oriented towards them learning about the capability more generally and how to defeat and overwhelm it. Um, that said, um, they can at any point turn this program of research and development in, into something deployable if, if they, you know, make enough uh, advances. Um, I just don't think that they are really prioritizing it because it's it's not their primary threat that they face uh, if things if the geopolitics were to change with Russia or or um, uh, developments um, uh, elsewhere in the region if others got more serious about offensive capabilities and and looked at this particular kind of capability then yeah. then they might get more serious about it
3: I mean that you'll know this figure better than I Randy but the the deployment of ballistic missiles by China has been close to 100 a year for a long long time um, so I think by an order of magnitude, if you looked at ballistic missile deployers, it'd be China, and then a big gap, and then probably North Korea, and then Iran, Pakistan. I don't. I think Russia's actually they're making a lot of noise, but then modernizing, but they're in there somewhere. So China's way ahead of the entire world in the pace and capability of ballistic missile deployments. And when they worry about nuclear deterrence. They, their answer for survivability is um, survivability is numbers, mobility, uncertainty. Uh, uncertainty. Yeah. It's not defense of assets uh, per se. Um, their best air defense system they buy from the Russians still. So, technologically, if that's your question, I, they have an ASAC capability, they demonstrated that. But I think for air defense, they're probably um, I, they're below the Russians technologically, I, would, I, think, I assume, because they're buying their best systems. Uh, the ones we were the most are not Chinese; they're Russian.
0: We could <coughs> maybe have one one more, or we can wrap up if there's no other questions. Yes, ma'am.
5: Thank you. Uh, this question is for Amy and also for Dr. Green. You said um, the missile defense actually would have a bigger power projections, and it has a bigger um, impact on the U.S. leadership globally. And hopefully it would have a lot of effect on the current chaos in the South China Sea. So geopolitically, I would like to hear from both of you regarding how the South China Sea, the current tensions, and how the current uh, capability of the U.S. and the whole other powers in the in the in the war regarding missile defence would have the effect on that. And one way or the other, how would the outcome of the conflicts in the South China Sea would impact the stability of the war and what would Amy suggest Congress to do about it? Thank you.
0: So I think there's a specific question. Well about it does kinda of relate.
3: Yeah. Um, I mean so 10, 15 years ago, I think the U.S. Navy assumed that if it had to go into the South China Sea to deal with a um, Taiwan scenario or or, or, or or any other scenario uh, involving China, they could do it. Now, I'm not so sure. <laughs> so um, the um, you know the, the, the China has reclaimed land on seven islands now and is. is it, my prediction going to put um, significant military assets on them in September or sometime after Xi Jinping comes to Washington. There's a little bit of time out now. <coughs> um, and uh, we will have, we the US allies and partners will have to decide how do we demonstrate that this doesn't change our freedom of navigation, which means we'll probably send, and we already sent a P8, we'll send more pl- ships through. But the defense of those ships will be a lot more complicated. And if the if, 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 if bases in Japan, if our alliance with Japan, our alliance with Australia, if our bases in Guam or Hawaii seem vulnerable, if we seem afraid, it's going to be a lot harder to deal with that problem. And I, uh, and I think that's China's assumption. So um, it relates to areas where we may never use missile defense because the whole US force posture has to be credible to dissuade China from thinking that coercion will work in the South China Sea. And the reverse is true in a way. We have to show we have the willpower not to be intimidated in the South China Sea to make it clear we won't be intimidated more broadly when there are threats to our force posture.
2: Um, People often make the argument that the United States can't necessarily, um, because they don't have a a stake in the South China Sea that they that they you know can't have have a say on the issue. Well, I mean. First of all, I would, I would disagree in that you know we have a stake in the um, the the freedom of navigation and open seas and, and and freedom of commerce through those those waters and having someone militarizing and building islands is, is is an unacceptable thing for for us and so you know to what extent that we could help provide capabilities for our partners and allies in the region um, to be able to bolster um, defenses or to improve um, greater codes of conduct or uh, norms and rules of the road for how to conduct in. In, in ambiguous territories, um, conduct behavior in, in, in ambiguous territories is, is valued. And, and I think that's where our leadership can really shine through, because we have experiences with as like a global expeditionary force with our Navy in, in all, all major areas of, of, uh, of the world. To, to be able to set the kind of precedents for, for, for appropriate behavior in, in these very contested areas. Um, in terms of what, what the United States Congress can do is I think they can continue having these types of hearings. We're also holding a South China Sea hearing um, later um, in, in July as well, so be on the lookout for that. And you know, we can integrate on and cross-pollinate on a lot of these issues, integrating ballistic missile defense, integrating greater partnerships and allies in the region with how do we address um, very contentious and difficult issues in Asia, be it South China Sea, be it North Korea, be it um, how, to, you know, how to really think about dealing with China in the future as well.
3: Can I make one final macro point that builds on Amy's excellent comments? Um, the, the objective of U.S. policy should not be to defeat China in a war. Right. The objective of U.S. policy is to have a productive relationship with China um, based on a, an order in Asia where smaller states aren't coerced, where, there's, where the rules we know are basically the rules. We can adjust and fine tune and work with China on that. Um, and where it's underpinned by US leadership. So the, the, I think the point we're all making is not we'll use missile defense to get China. The point of missile defense is it reinforces the um, structures and relationships in place so that Beijing is not tempted to think um, that they could, they could um, break our will or break our relations with our allies and, and change. Um, the the status quo or the dynamics um, uh, without paying a very high price.
0: Well, thanks to Kurt Campbell in absentia. Mm -hmm. Thanks to Amy and Bravo Zulu today on your commissioning. And thank you, Dr. Green. (laughs)